They hear it? Okay, good, good, good. Maybe I should have shaved. That wasn't me, was it? You know, I don't know if some of you might remember that we used to have a piano up here and that organ up here, right? And now it's full of instruments. How many years have we been praying for live music here in this church? And it is such a blessing, Allie, Jason, Toby, no, Joel. And I'm like, I was preparing, Gus. <laughs> Gus. And Jody, gosh, I knew you should never go up here and try to remember everything because then you just embarrass yourself, right? But it is such a blessing to have live worship. Thank you so very much for that. Thank you. And that was Jason's first solo. He has a record coming out. So, and it's called Just Jason. So, no. uh, please take your Bibles. We're going to be going to 1 Peter. I'll be in Peter. Uh, obviously, you notice there's, when Ron preaches, he's out of Colossians. When I'm preaching, I'm out of Peter, and we're doing series, which is good. And uh, Please take your Bibles there, and we did appreciate the rain yesterday. We got two and a half inches, and I think John said they got like an inch and a half up in Donnybrook. And they, 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 she calls it the high plain. There's like an anomaly going on over there where you guys live, where you get either more moisture than anybody else or no moisture when everybody else gets it. But, uh, but it was nice. It, everything is starting to green up, and everything just, it just brings, I don't know, it just brings a nice coolness to the day. All right. Well, let's get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the fellowship that we already had, the prayers for the healing Father, the opportunities we have for ministry. And Father, yes, the live worship, Father, where we lifted up our hearts and our minds and our souls to you, giving you thanks and praise, giving you all the glory. Well, Father, that's what I pray this morning for your word. Use me as your vessel to communicate your word, not only to my heart, first and foremost, but to the hearts that are here this morning. May it be a blessing and encouragement. But Father, most importantly, may it glorify you. So pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit will move in this place and minister to our hearts, I pray. Amen. So we are in 1 Peter, and uh, today's verses that we're going to be looking at are verses 5 through 12. Verses 5 through 12. And you know, two weeks ago, when I spoke about a living hope, as that's probably what your Bible's probably entitled this section of your Bible's, um, and as we were talking about a living hope, um, we see that Peter begins to identify some elements of faith. And within that sermon, we explored what that living hope is and how faith affects that living hope. And that we have a living hope because he lives. And we believe in that. He also discovered that the heart of this living hope is, in fact, our faith. We defined what faith was, how it grows, and that it is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb. We live because He lives. 
That's the source of our living hope. But within the first part of this first chapter, Peter also identifies four characteristics of faith that we need to take some time to understand for our own benefit. And so this morning, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 12. We'll be going backwards a little bit, like we did two weeks ago. But I think what you're going to realize is when Peter exposes the four characteristics of faith, that it will help us in growing our own faith. First, let's look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We spoke two weeks ago about all that God has done for us, selecting us before the foundations of the world, moving in us for the faith to believe in Him, chosen by Him, predestined by Him, given us the faith to believe. And then it's guarded by our faith, this salvation that He gives us. You know, our, our salvation didn't come and does not come by way of church. Doesn't come by way of ceremonies. Doesn't come by rituals. Doesn't come by baptism. It didn't come from reasoning alone, power deduction, or intellectual prowess. Salvation didn't come from tradition. Doesn't come from your parents or your family. Salvation comes by way of grace and faith. And it's individually. It's an individual accountability. But where does this faith that Paul and Peter talk about? Because if you remember, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So where's the source of this faith that they speak about? Now, there are two camps when it comes to the source of what is termed salvific faith. And we know that Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The question is, are we born with this faith? Or are we given this faith as an element of grace upon salvation? Well, there's two camps with a different position. On the one hand, some believe since we are created in the image and the likeness of God and His highest creation, therein lies within everyone the necessity to worship, and in the absence of worshiping God, we will worship something else. You've heard of the stories of unreached people in the Brazilian jungles. Upon reaching them and trying to minister to them as missionaries, you see an idol that looks like a plane. And they had been worshiping it because they seen it fly over their head. In the absence of God, we're seeing this throughout the world. In the absence of God, we will worship something. Whether it's in the remote jungles of Brazil, they'll worship something they don't understand because it's supernatural to them. To us in the industrialized world, we'll worship materialism. We'll worship ourselves. We become the highest form of God. And so people believe that because you're born 
in the likeness of God and the highest creation of God. And also in Romans chapter 1, it says that you're without excuse because no matter where you look, you see the hand of God and His creation. And so when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, it ignites that salvific faith that exists in you from your creation. Now that's one camp that believes that. The other camp believes that during regeneration and salvation by the work of the Holy Spirit, salvific faith is given to you as a gift of grace to the regenerated person in order to believe since we, as some believe, are in total depravity and there is nothing within us able to reach out to the Father on our own and it's all by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Now, whether you believe that you're born with salvific faith or whether you believe it's a gift of grace at the point of regeneration, the important thing is, is that during conversion, it ignites the faith to believe. And that is, by the way, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit It is impossible to be saved without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit ignites the faith that we have to believe upon Him. You know, the Protestant Reformers believe that saving faith had three aspects that are critical to salvation. The first is, I'm going to probably butcher these because it's Latin and I've... Notachias. Notachias. Which is the intellectual content in what we believe the intellectual content and what we believe. In order to have faith and believe, one must understand who Christ is, why He came, and what He did. In Romans, Paul says this, How then will they call upon Him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Really good example of this would be Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember the story. The Ethiopian eunuch was sitting in his carriage reading the book of Isaiah. And as he was reading the words, it says, as it related to the sheep at the slaughter and the lamb before the shear, the Ethiopian eunuch was confused as to who this person was and whom Isaiah was speaking about. But when Philip came and explained to him who Isaiah was talking about, it ignited the faith of the Ethiopian eunuch, who said, what is preventing me from right now believing and being baptized? And Philip took him down to the water and baptized him. The New Testament is filled with instances time and time again where the knowledge of Christ as preached and taught ignites the faith to believe. To make this point, let me ask you this. How many of you have led someone to Christ without ever uttering his name or his ministry or what Christ did on the cross. Now, if I'm a betting man, I would say none. None. In fact, there's a statement, and I understand the context of it. Go out and be a witness in the world, and if necessary, use words. I understand what they're saying. Through our conduct, we will draw people unto asking about what the hope that lies within us. But there are moralistic people. There are good people. There are religions that have a resemblance of Christ, a false doctrine, 
who show a very loyal family, show a very loyal following to the church, and side by side, you couldn't tell. And so it's the words of Christ that matter. It's the words that we use that matter. When we share Christ, we're sharing about who Jesus is, what he did for you and me, and the works that he accomplished on the cross. The next aspect of faith, the first one is knowledge. The second one is azisus. Again, sorry. Which means to believe that which the gospel is saying is true. It is one thing to believe in something. It's another to believe that it's true. One can have a knowledge of the Bible and yet not believe it's true. We know scholars that are out there, non-saved scholars who know the Bible inside and out, There are historians that use the Bible to trace things back in the Middle East. There are theologians who have never put their faith and trust in the Lord, and yet they hold the title of theologian, and they know this Bible inside and out. And yet, they don't believe, because to them it's reference material. It's history. It's academics. They don't believe it's true. I remember one time, I got so excited. My sister, whom I love dearly, was talking about a Bible study that they were having. They were of a different denomination. I'm not going to go that way, but they were talking about Moses and the ministry of Moses and the leadership of Moses. And I got so excited. I was like, can you believe that Moses lived as long as he did? This was new. I was new in my faith. And I was like so excited to join in on this conversation with my sister as she was talking to my mom about this Bible study they have with Moses. You mentioned the Bible, I'm there. I'm like, Do you, can you believe how old he was? And my sister looked at me and she goes, uh, he really wasn't that old. They had a different system of time. What? So I went back and I researched it. And I did comparative analysis. No, he really was that old. How easily we dismiss what the Word of God is saying because it doesn't compute into our mind. It doesn't make sense, so obviously it can't be true. But it was true. He did live that long. In fact, if you use any kind of different computation to figure out the age, okay, maybe they went by dog years. It doesn't compute with the other ages that are listed. So it is, he did really live as long as he did. It takes truth along with knowledge to have a salvific faith. In fact, remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's the truth. I know in the world in which we live today, truth is, well... It's defined by many means. But there is absolute truth. And Jesus is absolute truth. But understanding something, having knowledge of something, and believing it's true, there's still something lacking. And that's where the third element of salvific faith comes from, and it's called fiducia. Fiducia. And what does that mean? It means trust. 
It means trust. Nicodemus, he evaluated Jesus' ministry. Remember, he met him in the garden at night. And he understood that the things that Jesus was doing and who he was had to be true. He had to be from God. But what was the thing that Nicodemus was missing? He believed in Jesus and who he was. He believed in the things that he did because nobody could do them except to the hand of God. And yet what was he lacking? Trust. Trust. Knowledge is important and believing is something as true as great. But without trust, it holds no salvific power. Trust connects us in a personal and intimate and spiritual way. Knowledge and truth are the, of the intellect, but commitment and dependence is of the will and the heart. And it takes the will and the heart of a person to place their trust in what they know and what they believe to be true. Do you ever play that game where you stand and you fall backwards? The trust game? Tried that in youth group. They believed we were back there. They believed that we were going to catch them. But only a few trusted to the point of allowing themselves to fall backwards. That's what we're talking about. Do you believe and know it's true and trust? And so we need this trust. In fact, there's an example found in none other than John 3.16. You know the verse. Whoever believes in him is a part of that verse. Whoever believes in him. Now we're going to focus on that word believe. And that word actually is defined as believe into, not just of him. To believe into, not just of him. And that's important to grasp because simply believing in him and acknowledging his existence in history with little to no commitment or dependence. But when you believe into him, it is one of trust and of will and of your heart. You know, I talk to people about the Lord as often as I can, and I say, well, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I do. Do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and was raised on the third day? And that the tomb is empty? Yeah, I do. Do you trust Him to be your Lord and Savior? Do you claim Him to be your Lord and Savior? That's where it stops. Because now it calls for commitment. Now it calls for a trust beyond belief in what is true. It calls upon your will. It calls upon your heart. You see, you could believe something intellectually and it won't change who you are. But when you believe something in your heart, it transforms who you are. It transforms who you are. So you're probably sitting there going, okay, Tim, why did you just break down the Protestant salvific faith in three different terms? Why is this important? If I was sitting in the pews, that's the question I would be asking. Okay, Tim, why did you take us down this intellectual road? There's a reason for it. First and foremost is we need to know how we believe. Mike made an intro on abundant life. When people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, all they know is they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
but they don't understand exactly what happened. This wonderful and exciting thing that's changed their life forever. The best thing that ever happened to them. What's the details? How did this happen? I don't know if you're like me, but that's me. Well, that's what that course is going to teach you. And understanding our faith, our salvific faith, and the fact that it's based on the knowledge of who Jesus is, based on the fact that it's true, everything he said and done is true, and that we believe in the inerrancy of this word of God that we've been given, to believe that Moses lived as long as he did, but to also trust and believe in him, into him. Now we can understand our faith. And so that's important. That's one reason. Another reason is to address universalism. There's a doctrine and a belief out there that because Jesus died on the cross, he died for all. For all. That means everybody's saved. Everybody's going to heaven. No matter how you live your life at some point, you are going to heaven. That's universalism. That's false doctrine. And understanding the elements of salvific faith combats universalism. No, you have to put your trust in the Lord in order to be saved. You have to confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. For with that confession of faith, you will be saved. But it also addresses spiritualism. I remember one time I was talking to a guy and I said, Hey man, we were talking and I was kind of sensing this guy was... A man of faith. And I was like, so I wanted to engage. Like I said, I will never not have a conversation about God. <laughs> if, especially if there's... Invi- so I was talking with him. And he goes, well, I'm very spiritual. What does that mean? It means I, I, I believe in a lot of things. I believe. I was spiritual. I went to a church and I had this feeling of just complete peace and happiness and joy. Do, do, do you know Jesus? Well, I, like I said, I, I, I'm at peace with God, and I, I just feel comfortable when, when, I'm, when I'm at church. Have you made a commitment to the Lord? Like I said, I, I, I believe in a lot of things. And Brothers and sisters, you can come to this church, sit in this pew. Fellowship. Praise and worship. Hear the Word of God. But without a commitment of faith, the Bible says you need to commit. You need to trust in your heart that Jesus is the Lord and confess with your mouth. Because when you do, you'll be saved. It's not about spiritualism. It's not about having peace because you... I can go to the park and have peace sitting there watching squirrels. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And so that's why I've explained salvific faith. The second characteristic of faith that Peter touches on is is found in verses 6 through 7. Let's take a look at them. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, perishes, though what is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The words that stand out to me in those two verses are necessary and genuineness. And necessary means, if need be, 
your faith will be tested. Now, there's a false teaching, and some might even call it a bad doctrine, being taught in some churches that if you are a believing Christian and you confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will not have illness, you will not have sickness, you will not have troubles, you will not have trials, you will not have testing of any sort. You will not be in want of anything because that which was stolen by the enemy will be returned to you tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold. And if you have sufficient faith, these things will not, you will not experience the troubles of life. But if you do, it's because you don't have enough faith. That is not only false teaching and doctrine and not understanding the Word of God, but it also causes severe psychological and emotional damage to the person who thinks because of the trial and tribulation they're going through, they don't have enough faith to get rid of it. Faith needs to be tested. Faith needs to be refined within us. And God uses trials and tribulations to achieve this. In fact, the trial and testing will do one of two things. It will either draw you unto God closer, or it will draw you away. Remember Demas, Paul's colleague? person who ministered with Paul? Demas was a servant of Paul and traveled with Paul and was with Paul during his first imprisonment. But during Paul's second imprisonment, Demas left Paul in a lurch, which means left him in great need. Because he no longer wanted a life of testing and trial, but craved a life in the world which had far less troubles because of the persecution of the faith. He left it. I don't need this. And this brings us to the second word that stands out in the verse, and that's genuineness. Genuineness. Genuineness means to be proved or to be tried. It is to determine if something is sincere and real. Earlier this year, I went through a great trial, and now looking back, it not only removed an idol that I still had in where my security comes from, but my faith was strengthened because he carried me through the trial. He strengthened me along the way. He validated his promises to me. And when the trial had passed away, confidence in the Lord was stronger than it ever had been. And I had great joy. And I began to rest in the blessings of that trial and that testing. I like what David Gerzik says about the testing of our faith. And that is, our faith isn't tested because God doesn't know how much or what kind of faith we have. It is tested because we often are ignorant of how much or what kind of faith we have. There's no, God knows the depth of your heart, knows the depth of your faith. But you know, sometimes we need to understand the depth of our faith. God needs to take us to the very edge in order for us to understand. I equate it to the half marathon that I ran years ago, a couple years ago. The longest I ever ran in a half marathon was 10 miles. 
in preparation for the 13-mile marathon. I only did it twice. In all the time that I trained from March until September, yeah, I was that far out of shape. When I went to the marathon and I hit the 10-mile mark, I remember praying, Lord, you're going to take me farther than I ever have before. We're in uncharted territory. And because of his grace and his strength, I was able to finish the 13 miles without walking. That's what trials and testing do. It takes you beyond what you think you can endure in order to show you how much faith you really have. And how he, if you place your confidence and trust in him, will carry you. Will carry you. Now, Spurgeon said this about the testing of our faith and why it's necessary. Indeed, it is an honor of faith to be tried. Shall any man say, I have faith, but I have never had to believe under difficulties. Who knows whether thou hast any faith? Shall a man say, I have great faith in God, but I have never had to use it in anything more than the ordinary affairs of life? Where I could probably have done without it as well with it? Is this the honor and the praise of thy faith? Does thou think that such a faith as this will bring any great glory to God? Or bring to thee any great reward? If so, if so thou art mightily mistaken. But something else happens when our faith is tested. It produces something. Now take your Bibles and just go left of Peter, and you'll see James. And in James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, let's read that. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, what does that word steadfastness mean? Now, that's the word that the ESV uses. There might be a different word in your, in your um, version. But it means endurance. It means endurance. I really like how Webster defines endurance. And it's defined this way. The fact of power of enduring an unpleasant or difficult process or situation without giving way. Without giving way. The goal of our faith is to endure without giving way. The testing of my faith early in my walk were mild compared to the testings I now go through. And every testing that I go through deepens my faith in Him. Each time, if you look at it from a refining process, each time my faith is tested, each time your faith is tested, that slag that goes through the refining process comes to the top and it's scraped off. I remember making lead jigs. And you would put lead in a, in a uh, I don't know what you call that thing that heats it up. It's a little ceramic dish. You put lead in there. And always to the top comes that black, nasty slag. And you would take this little thing like a little washer that was, I don't know, welded to the end of a stick, and you would just drag all that dross or slag off the top. 
And what is left underneath there is this bright, shiny material that was lead. Now, I wish I could use that example of gold, but I don't have gold to do that. But it's the same process. And as you know in the scriptures that we just read, that your faith is going to be refined as gold. And every time it's tested, and every time there's a trial, that slag and that dross is drawn up to the top, and God removes it, thus refining your faith and dependence upon Him. Brothers and sisters, you'll find yourself in the midst of trials. And maybe some here today are experiencing this in some way. Yes, they're unpleasant, and you would rather not go through them. But understanding now that the testing of your faith proves the genuineness and produces endurance and dependence and is being refined every time it's tested to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ, then let it have its full effective work in you to make you perfect, to make you complete, to make you lack nothing. Because that's what it will do. The third characteristic of faith is the faith that trusts. And we find this in verses 8 through 9. Verses 8 through 9 of 1 Peter. And I'll read them. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, excuse me, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You know, within man, it is counterintuitive to believe in something you cannot see, you cannot touch, or you cannot examine. Faith calls upon us to have a conviction of the things not yet seen. To place our trust in something we cannot touch, something we cannot hold, something that we can't smell or see. And this goes against every one of our senses. By nature, we're mistrusting. How many of you have have had somebody come up and say, man, you got to go take a look. I'm telling you what I'm seeing is true. And you go, you know what? Let me go see for myself. Right? And they're trying to convince you what they're seeing is true. And you're like, yeah, okay. Oh, now I see what you're saying. Or that mistrusting. You know, Thomas, the apostle, you remember his story. He was told all the stories about Jesus' resurrection. All the people that had seen him. They were all telling Thomas, Thomas, he's risen. He's risen. He appeared to us. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the apostles. He's here. Remember what Thomas said? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of those nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Here's an apostle who traveled with Jesus over two years, seeing miracle after miracle, healing after healing, powerful teaching that transformed lives. And yet he doesn't believe. The stories that are now coming from the apostles that he's risen. He did exactly what he said he would do. 
For him, Jesus, for him, Thomas, Jesus was buried and the dream of his ministry was buried with him. Everything he's seen, everything he heard, everything he witnessed now required physical evidence in order to believe. You know, some call Thomas's doubt flat-out disbelief. It was unreasonable, it was obstinate, and it was an insult to Christ. And yet, Jesus revealed himself to Thomas. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to oblige Thomas, but he did. Because all the evidence, all the things that were being told, all the testimonies that were being seen should have been sufficient for Thomas to believe. And yet Jesus revealed himself to Thomas. And Thomas believed. Thomas believed. Brothers and sisters, Thomas, you know what he was really looking for? He was looking for a sign. He was looking for evidence. He was looking for proof. A sign to believe in what he was hearing. Fortunately for his faith and ours, Christ made himself known in the flesh and he believed. But remember what Jesus also told Thomas after he did so. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. No, I don't know how Thomas took that. I know how I would have taken that. It would have humbled me. It would have humbled me. You know, we don't need to see Jesus in the flesh. And we don't need to see signs and wonders and miracles to believe. You know why? Because we have the Word of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later, in John chapter four, in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Jesus is the Word. And this Bible we hold reveals Christ, and it ignites our faith to believe and trust in Him. It's just not a book. It is a living Word. Listen to what Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from life to death. Whoever hears my word. Peter himself said later in, his, in this letter, we're going to explore it weeks down the road. He answered to Jesus, Lord, to whom, I'm sorry, in, 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 a, in a different book, but Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Guys, this is not a book. This is a living and active word. And it ignites our faith to believe. And our faith is based on the living word of Christ. And it's not based on what we can see or what we can prove. Yes, there is apologetics, and they're important to defend the gospel. 
And I truly believe that God's word can be defended historically, philosophically, intellectually, and academically successfully. Because it's truth. But our faith in Christ is not based on winning an argument. I have once said that I could convince someone to be a Christian just by way of moral works and works itself. But within a short period of time, I give it a couple of weeks, they'll be right back to who they were. Why? Because it didn't have faith. And that faith is ignited by the Spirit of the living God to the one who was lost and seeking. And it gives them the words of life without ever seeing or touching the one whom they believe. This is true faith because it places their trust in something beyond their senses. It's in Christ by way of their heart, by way of their faith. Remember what Paul said, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The fourth and final characteristic of faith that Peter's talking about is found in verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In this fourth characteristic of faith highlighted by Peter, one could miss this very easily, overlook it, brush over it. When we speak of faith, we see it more like on an individual line or an individual endeavor or a personal thing. In fact, when we even ask at times, what is your faith? When we talk to some other people, of course, what we're really asking is, what's your denomination and where do you go to church and what do you believe? I think we forget sometimes that our faith must be revealed to others, must be shared. All throughout the New Testament, we are asked to grow our faith, increase our faith, add to our faith, some virtue or characteristic. But we must also be reminded that our faith is to be revealed to a lost and dying world. In the age of relativism, which means you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe. In the age of individualism, in the age of isolationism, which is being dramatically aided by technology, coupled with the hypersensitive culture in which we live that is easily offended by anything they don't agree with, where truth has been replaced by acceptance and tolerance, and where the opinion of social media mob carries more weight and influence than leaders in the community. People are now pulling their heads into their proverbial shells and only live in their Christian lives out in Christian circles because it's safe. Just within my life as a Christian, I have noticed that that harvest field, that field that's ready for harvest, 
They were receptive to praying for them, to speaking to them about Christ. To now, it's an offense. I work in my job, I work for the federal government. And when I was in DOD, when I was in the military, up until the last five to six years, I have been able to share my faith freely with anybody. And they weren't offended. And I didn't get a talk from my boss. Everybody knows who Tim Allen is. Now, not so much. I have to navigate it very carefully. I have to pray that the Lord would provide these divine moments because I've learned that my faith is an offense to other people. I don't know how that is. I actually do know why that is. But we are to reveal our faith to a lost and dying world. Many of the prophets lived in the same world we live in now, and yet it did not deter them from revealing the word through their prophetic messages they received from the Holy Spirit. They seen their message as one of hope for their world, but also for the world and future generations to come. In fact, they themselves wanted to understand exactly what was given to them. Understand, the prophets were not given the complete story. They were given segments of who this Christ is. And that's why they said that they searched it carefully because they too wanted to understand what the Lord was showing them in its entirety. And so they studied their own prophetic messages and they studied the prophetic messages of others to understand this message of salvation that was to come in the future. You know, I find it amazing the faith of these prophets when they receive the inspired word from the Holy Spirit. Just look at Isaiah's case, just for a second. Early on in his letter, he wrote, For unto you a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Can you imagine the jubilation of Isaiah? Yeah, finally. He's coming, and this is what he's going to do. He's going to rule. It's going to change the world. Only later to write in verse in chapter 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He bore the sin of many. Can you imagine being Isaiah? And on one hand writing this wonderful thing that's going to happen in the future only to end in death? Would that make you question what you're receiving? Oh, wait, 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 Lord, let me get this right. You Wait, I want to make sure I got this exactly the way you said it. Demonstrates the faith that they had and what they were hearing from God. Do we have that same faith? And what we hear from God is true. That what we hear from God is what we are to live out. 
What areas of God's word has he revealed to you that you're hesitant to do? That can't possibly be true, Lord. That's not what you're asking me to do. That can't possibly be what you're asking. That can't possibly be what you're revealing. I must be getting my wires crossed here. Have you ever received a message like that? I have. And I had to go back and undo everything I did because I thought what I thought was of God was not of God. And then he revealed in his word what he actually wanted me to do. And I had to go back and cancel what I put in motion and eat probably the largest crow sandwich I ever had. I had orders to Texas. I was going to the schoolhouse. I was going to be an instructor. And I had to go back to the chief that I asked to coordinate all of this with. And only had to go back and say, I can't go. Why? Because at lunch hour, the Lord revealed to me exactly what he wanted me to do. And verified it with scripture. He said, this might have an effect on your career. Doesn't matter. When you get the burden of the Lord to do something, you do it. And let God handle the consequences. You just need to be obedient. You just need to be obedient. Now the prophetic word has ceased as we now have the complete word of God. The pieces of the prophetic puzzle have been orchestrated into a redemptive and complete story. We now know in detail how it began, how it has played out, and how it will end. And even though we have this complete story, it must still be revealed through our faith to this world. To the souls who are lost and seeking truth. To the hurting who are in need of healing. To the wounded who are in need of forgiveness and redemption. You hold the keys to life through the word that resonates in your heart. To someone who's dying. And needs to hear the truth. Needs to hear the words that will ignite their faith to believe. And God has chosen you and me to do this. We need to reveal our faith to the world. Because it's perishing. Listen. Listen to what Peter says. And this is the verse that I said was later in the book. I apologize. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. The greatest gift you have been given is your testimony. If anything, if, if only one thing that you can share with someone who is seeking the truth, of life is to share your testimony and how God has transformed your life. Because you know why? People see your change. People see you're different. When I changed from a heathen to a saint, I had friends come up to me and go, Tim, why don't you drink with us anymore, man? Why don't you play poker with us anymore? Why don't you go? Sorry, guys, I don't do that anymore. What's the next question they asked? Why? They said, why? I see open door. 
And then you start talking to them about how the Lord changed your heart, convicted you of your sin and unrighteousness, and how He has given you a hope that is eternal. I'm telling you, people, they listen to that because that's what they want. And they may come to the Lord right then, or they may come to the Lord later in life. I remember a man that I served with, that I shared Christ with. I was just one seed. There were many seeds being planted. Later I heard he gave his life to the Lord. You have no idea what effect you're going to have on someone's life. So you need to live your life in a revealed faith. You know, I remember another story of mine. I was working with a man, and we were sitting there talking and talking with other people, and I was talking. I was looking at the news, and I said, you know what? The world is getting worse and worse and worse, and soon Jesus will come. And he said it was going to be like this before he comes. I said, so get ready. Jesus is coming. That's really about all I said. The next morning, that man came up to me and he said, I heard what you said. I thought about what you said. And I went to my knees. And I asked God, am I ready? He gave his life to the Lord. I didn't individually witness to him. I didn't have one-on-one with him. All I did was simply share my faith in an open area and it resonated in his heart. The Holy Spirit was already doing a work in his heart, confirmed the word that I was speaking about, that I was just sharing in relationship to the news, and it forever changed his heart. And the Lord saved his soul. And I had no idea, and I felt bad, because when he told me how the words that I spoke resonated in his heart, I didn't think they were that big of a deal. But they were. And it forever changed his life. Our faith is not to be kept to ourselves. And I understand in the day in which we live, it's becoming harder and harder and harder to share your faith. But pray for God to provide you divine moments. Because he will. And don't be afraid or ashamed or embarrassed. Share your faith because you just might change someone's life forever. Remember what Matthew chapter 10 says, For what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim to the housetops. This morning, we looked at the four characteristics of faith that Peter talks about in his first chapter. A faith that saves a faith that trusts, a faith that is tested, and a faith that needs to be revealed in the life of the believer. This is the faith that gives us this living hope that we live in. And the living hope that you share just by virtue of the hope that you put in Christ in this world is a hope they desire to have. And so I hope this morning, in exploring those four characteristics of faith, you have a better understanding of faith. 
and a confidence to go out and reveal that faith to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father God, that it speaks to our hearts. Thank you, Father God, that it holds life. It holds truth. And Father, when it's heard, it can ignite the the faith to believe. And so, Father God, we just pray that this week you would give us opportunities to share this faith that we have in a world that needs to hear it. And we just ask your blessing to be upon it. Let it stir in our hearts. Let us move us in sharing this faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.